Want more of the Josh Scanlon podcast? Please. Please. Here you go. The Josh Scanlon podcast starts right now. Welcome to another edition of the Josh Scanlon Podcast, my friends, where we discuss personal finance that you can understand. It is uh, Sunday, April 15th, about 9 p.m., and I am calling Larry Kotlikoff, an economist over at Boston University and just one of the most influential people on my life, uh, both professionally from a financial planning perspective, as well as my own personal finances uh, on top of that. So, Larry Kotlikoff at BU is the uh, is going to be who we interviewed today. By all means, go to his website at kotlikoff.net. Uh, he is just all over the place when it comes to social security planning. Uh, it just he ran for president a couple times. It's just going to be a wonderful, wonderful episode. The guy's just brilliant, and uh, and actually, what I love best about him is he makes the complex easy for the average person to understand, and he doesn't do it in financial jargon that only you know, a PhD in economics could understand is actually you as just over average Joe or Jane sitting in your car, you can say, oh man, that guy makes so much sense when it comes to your own personal financial planning. And that's why I just love what Larry's work has been. I get this question a million times a Sunday and I talk about in the interview about if there's one book to read, what would it be? And Larry's book, who he co-wrote with a guy named Scott Burns called Spend Till the End is the number one recommendation I make all the time. And uh, Spend to the End, I think, was written in 2007, eight or something like that, uh, right when the financial crisis came to be. So it didn't get nearly the accolades it, it really deserves, frankly. Um, but man, if you have one book, financial plan to get, that is absolutely what you should get. It's you know, 10 bucks on Amazon. It's just absolutely worth your while. I don't care if you're a retiree or if you're just starting out or anywhere in between. Uh, it's just, it's it changed my life, financial planning. It absolutely did. It's just remarkable, remarkable stuff. So, with great privilege, am I going to bring to you Larry today? Uh, the first 20 seconds or so, a little bit of a, a dead space in there as I'm work, learning how to use my interviewing app on my phone. I use tape a call, so just hit 15 seconds, you know, fast forward 15 seconds, you're not going to miss anything. But if you do hear some dead space, trust me, an interview is going to be coming on. Just hit the fast forward for 15 cents and 15 seconds, and we'll be ready to rock and roll. I look forward to bringing you this interview on the Josh Scanlon Podcast with Larry Kolikoff. Thanks, guys. All right, I'm going to add this call for Larry here. Bear me just one second, my friends, while we get him on the horn. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Absolutely. My interview I did yesterday with a guy locally, the cell phone was kind of garbled. So am I coming through okay on your end? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Hey, fantastic. Well, I appreciate getting on this call. There's even uh, I know you got uh, class to teach tomorrow, so I certainly appreciate taking some time to talk to me. I, I can't tell you how excited I am to, uh, to talk to Larry Kolikoff. This is fantastic. So I hope you're not getting No, no big deal. No big deal, really. 
Hey, I hope you're not getting any snow or anything up there. I'm, I'm from Maine originally. I saw Peace Island, Maine, where I was born and raised. They're calling for snow uh, tonight or a little bit this evening. I said, you got to be kidding me. So uh, I hope I hope you're staying warm, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, it's been really cold here today and windy and uh, raining. So, yeah, <laughs> wherever you are, it's better, I think. No, that's, uh, well, I'm in right north of Atlanta. I tell you, that's one of the reasons I don't go up there very often because I can't take the snow anymore. But, uh, hey, I'll just get started right quick if you don't mind i know you know you got other things to do and everything sure yeah, yeah and i cannot i just uh it's so appreciative you taking this call with me i am recording this call i'll put it on the podcast that i'm doing so just fyi you know watch sure. what you say i guess we don't want nsa uh, breathing down your neck or anything because this is a recorded uh-huh. call so just fyi uh, sure sorry if you don't mind the first thing i gotta ask you i mean i'll get into some of the economic stuff but you've run president a couple times um, are we ever, ever, ever going to get a viable third party? I, I just the, the Republicans piss me off, the Democrats piss me off, and there's just got to be a better way, and yet it never happens. So when is that going to happen? And just talk on that a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, well, there's a a couple really good third party uh, parties trying to um, become established. One is called the Modern Whig Party, and uh, if you go to Modern Whig. Uh, modernwigs.org you'll find it, I believe that's the URL. And also there's a, a Serve America Movement Party, which is uh, joinsam.org mm-hmm. S-A-M, just join S-A-M. So both of these parties are um, uh, are uh, manned and woman by reasonable, really reasonable, nice people, good people. The uh, Modern Wigs Party um, was set up by vets actually in Afghanistan and, and Iraq while that, while they were still uh, stationed abroad in, in those uh, arenas of war. They were so disgusted going back 10 years ago with the political system and how yeah. things were turning out that they set up this, their party. And um, the SAM party, the JoinSAM.org party, is um, uh, kind of centered in New York younger people who are very upset with the two choices that we're getting, kinds of choices we're getting, uh, have set this up. They have a little more money. So here's uh, my view. I think that if any of the 500 billionaires uh, who's neither left or right um, but is more of a centrist, and it must be some of the 500 American billionaires must be really, the majority must be in the middle if yeah. Amazon wants to become president, all they have to do is contact one of these organizations, and they're looking. They're really shopping around. Both organizations are shopping around for a candidate. And in order to get the press to pay attention, yeah. uh, they, somebody has to have a lot of money. That's yeah. just the reality of, that I experienced when I ran as a writing candidate last time. The press, even though I was one of five legally eligible people to become president in the election because I was registered in in uh, every state where you could register to be um, a presidential candidate, with maybe one or two exceptions. Um, <clears throat> so I could legally become president, because um, unless you're registered, your vote, your write-in vote doesn't count, actually. Um, so mm-hmm. anyway, the press was not interested because, of, uh, you know, the first question they had was, how much money do I have? Right. And my answer was, I'll, I'll have a lot of money. <laughs> Personally, I don't have any money at the moment, but... Uh, you know, I'm just a professor of economics, but if you write about me, um, and others do, I have plenty of money people will contribute. But anyway, 
that didn't happen. So we need to have somebody who's, uh, you know, middle of the road here in terms of politics, understands we've got big, big problems in this country that are not getting fixed, wants to fix them. I'd be very happy to share my platform with any such candidate. They don't have to start from scratch. They're very simple solutions uh, to our ma massive problems that we have in every area, healthcare, social yeah. security, tax, fiscal system, uh, banking, education, immigration. We need foreign policy. We need to have a coherent uh, solution to where we are. But uh, that can, that uh, billionaire can get the nomination of these, one of these two parties or both parties very easily. All they have to do is, and, and for $50 million, which is a drop in, in the bucket for a billionaire, <clears throat> they can have that, they can help get the party on the ballot in all 50 states. That's, that's what it takes, about $50 million. Might even be $20 million, I'm not sure. But um, my guess is it's somewhere between 20 and 50. And for a billionaire, that's not a big deal. Oh. So, so this can happen, and this can happen really this year. We just need to get the word out. So anybody who's who knows a billionaire or knows somebody who knows a billionaire, or it doesn't even need to be a billionaire. I mean, Herman right. Cain ran. Uh, I don't know that he was a billionaire. He made money in the pizza, I believe, uh, pizza business. And frankly, he and the other many of the other people running were not qualified uh, to be president. And but. They got a lot of he got a lot of attention because he was rich, yeah. but I don't think he was a billionaire. So maybe if we're, if somebody's listening has a couple hundred million dollars, that's plenty for the press. That, that's they just um, need to be impressed by the, the dollar bill sign, and they'll come um, flocking because they realize that um, we are very ripe in this country for a Macron, a French type. Yeah, over oh. the political system. Yeah. Completely agree. Actually, Macron's the guy. Uh, but it's funny you said that. That was, I think, that's actually a pretty good model to follow. And uh, I'm just, I'm shocked that. Well, I guess I'm not shocked. I shouldn't be shocked. It's uh, you know, money drives politics, and just that. I sit there, you know, the Reform Party, and you know, like Perot or not, and I know that's where you were kind of playing the flag. Is that's gone? I mean, the you know, the Libertarians never done anything. You know, the Green Party, whatever. But just uh, there's got to be a better way because what's happening now is is just. Now, a follow-up on that, though, so let me just ask you. So along those lines of the deficits leading into more debt, you know, Social Security and all the stuff that you write about, I, I guess the other question would be why would anyone care? I mean, we've been hearing about this stuff for years and years and years, and yet here we are. You know, we still have – in fact, I was just reading the blog post today, this guy was saying the average American house is about twice the size of what it was 30 years ago, and yet the average American family is what asked. And so it seems like, hey – you know, nothing's happened. You know, we've been hearing this doomsday for a long time. Why should we care? Any, any comments on that? Well, I think if you look at the um, at all the indicators, you can look at them all collectively. You can look at them one by one. I mean, look at Social Security. It's yeah. uh, it's scheduled, you know, in X number of years to run out of money to the tune of twenty five percent, where you're going to have to cut benefits by 25% overnight. Well, if you look at the Congressional Budget Office's projections of official debt to GDP, it, it, uh, it pretty quickly becomes over 100%. Uh, if you look at, um, and it's gone from about 30% maybe 15 years ago to over 70% today. Uh, and that, if you look at Medicare and Medicaid, these programs can't yeah. pay for themselves. Uh, 
Obamacare too. Uh, we can't, you know, if the country was really rich, we wouldn't be fighting over giving people health insurance. We wouldn't be fighting over whether or not we can fund even you know, a wall and uh, whatever solution we need to protect our borders. Uh, we wouldn't be fighting over funding the National Science Foundation uh, or the National Endowments of the Arts. Uh, we wouldn't be having we wouldn't be having bridges that yeah. collapse <laughs> that are well, collapsing uh, are not being repaired. So there are all these signs. We wouldn't have a, a fifth-rate educational system. We wouldn't be spending less than 30 other countries on uh, early child education. We are we're actually broke, uh, and we're not broke in the future. We're broke today, and it shows. It's I think people just and yeah, there are certain certain um, indicators that uh, the country is doing better than it was, but the, the growth of per capita GDP has been very slow since yeah. uh, and wages uh, for decades. So there's a lot of rich people who are much better off, but most middle class people are really not much better off and are working harder to sustain that more expensive house. Also, you know, if these houses were built when we had larger families, they're not going to be torn down. So that's one reason why people are living in them. It's, you know, what they're living in bigger houses is because they were built uh, in the past. So, and I, you know, I, when is this all going to hit the, um, hit the fan? Nobody knows for sure. I think if, if we started to get some honest uh, fiscal gap accounting yeah. where we showed exactly in in present value if we put everything all the debts on the books and all the also all the assets like the future taxes we're going to get uh collect on the books we'd see that we'd have we have uh, a fiscal gap separating the present value of all the projected outlays including servicing official debt uh that minus the present value of all the projected receipts the, the taxes and other receipts the fiscal gap right now in present value uh, to the, our country's credit card bill, current credit card bill, is $200 trillion. That's 10 years of GDP. So, yeah. And, and it's, this number's just gotten bigger um, as I've been calculating, but the politicians have been very effective in keeping that out of the public eye. Uh, it was uh, Secretary O'Neill, the Treasury Secretary under Bush, was fired because he was trying to this is a little known uh, fact, but he was trying to include a fiscal gap analysis in the president's budget, and he was fired, and within two days, they censored the report. He had developed this report inside the Treasury, and um, September 7th, 2002, uh, Pearl Harbor Day, he was fired. Two days later, <clears throat> the people preparing this within the Treasury, the study, uh, were told it was being censored, wasn't going to be included. I, uh, there was a similar study that I worked on with um, uh, two other economists in 94 under the Clinton administration with OMB with the Office of Management and Budget, and it was censored two days before it was supposed to come out in the December report of the president, uh, actually the president's budget as well. Uh, so both the Democrats and the Republicans have been censoring the truth here. There's this bill that um, that I helped co-author called uh, the INFORM Act. So if you go to the INFORM, I-N-F-L-R-M, Act all one word, theinformat.org. Okay. You'll see a bill that I helped write that was co-sponsored, bipartisan bill, 
uh, to force uh, the CBO, OMB, and the GAO to do fiscal gap accounting on a routine basis. And it only got seven senators to endorse Only seven senators endorsed it. <laughs> so, yeah, we need a third party desperately. And because um, uh, the truth's not coming out and the people don't understand what's really going on. Uh, and what's going on is we've been taking from our kids from yeah. across both administrations uh, for generations now, for decades, starting really with Eisenhower and giving to the old people and then telling our kids, you get a chance to expropriate your kids. So it's just exactly. kind of They'll do the same, right? Exactly. And yeah. It, it, along those lines, too, though, is, you know, again, just being a little bit of a devil's advocate, you know, we've been hearing for years that the pension crisis is going to overcome us. You know, Illinois is going to go bankrupt, New Jersey, all these things, and, you know, their bond ratings are, are down, but, you know, they seem to be getting by. So it's like, I mean, it's almost like, how big is the credit card? I mean, how much can we continue to put on it before, at some point, we just not even we're not even paying the principal down. We're we're not even paying the interest now. So it's just when is that going to come? I know you don't know, but it's just at the end of the day, you hear all these things about you know Social Care, Medicaid, Medicaid. Never mind, you know, various pensions from the uh, debt obligations that these states and, and towns have, and. At some point, you just throw up your hands and forget it. It's, it's going to blow up in our face sometime or it won't. But uh, it's just frustrating that, you know, Clinton and Bush and, you know, Obama and Trump, it's all bipartisan. These guys, none of them seem to have the political will to, to do anything about it. And I guess uh, it's, uh, it's frustrating. Well, these bills aren't going to pay themselves. So the accounting is, you know, the people can ignore them for a while, but at some point, just like they ignored uh, Detroit's fiscal condition for years before they declared it bankrupt. Uh, it, you know, it's not like Detroit was in great shape two weeks before they declared it bankrupt. It, it was in, it was in <laughs> terrible shape. And, by the way, Social Security is in far worse shape than, than the Detroit pensions were when uh, Detroit went bankrupt. I mean, it's, it's 34% under finance compared to about 20% under financing of the uh, Detroit pensions. So, Wow. That's really what brought Detroit under was a pension system. Social Security is in far worse shape than the, the city of Detroit was, which is not a, uh, a beacon on the hill for sure. That's interesting. I, I didn't uh, no, and, yeah, and, presume. And this stuff, you know, it does go on. Companies and, and uh, governments uh, survive right up to the point where somebody wakes, the financial markets wake up. Yeah. And the... Uh, but of course, the way we're so so, I would personally never touch a not touch a um, long-term nominal bond, either a U.S. Treasury bond or a um, or a uh, corporate bond that's not protected against inflation. Because I think the, the first thing the government's going to do uh, in the future, as it needs more money, is just to print it, and we're going to see a lot of inflation until we until that people realize that that's not a solution either. Uh, and, you know, at that point, we're going to, you know, we're, we're kind of stuck. It's not like you can do what you can do in Russia, which is to starve a generation of older people, and they'll accept that. Uh, that's what happened during hyperinflation in 98 in Russia. They didn't index any the pensions and of, of older people, retirees, or of the military, and... Consequently, many people um, 
the death rate went up and um, life expectancy declined. We can't do that in our country. We're a democracy. And um, so we're kind of stuck owing money to older generations and younger people have to pay and then they're going to have to go after the next set of people to get some return on their contribution. So you're in this death spiral for the that we've set up this death spiral for the country where generation after generation is just going to get worse. We saw this, we've seen this uh, picture before. It's called Argentina. Back yeah. in 1910, Argentina had the fifth highest per capita GDP um, in the world. It was a developed country. Today, it's a developing country again. And that, that's not because Argentina somehow had uh, bad natural resources uh, or unfortunate ones over this period or it's landlocked or uh, it got hit by drought or something. It, it's got a great resources, it's got great people, pretty good education. It had lousy government for 100 years, and you see the result right now. And they can't dig their way out of it, essentially. And then They can't dig their way out unless they, you know, how you get uh, into the hole affects how deep the hole is. In other words, you can't, it's not like you can uh, say, oh, we have all these obligations that we're off the books and therefore we'll just forget about them. That means cutting Social Security benefits. I mean, just for Social Security, you'd have to cut Social Security benefits by about 25% immediately and permanently to get that system in order starting today. So do you know anybody on Social Security? I I deal with them all the time, exactly. Yeah, you deal with them all the time. Imagine telling them this, something like 20% of of retirees are are wholly dependent on Social Security. Imagine telling them a quarter of their income is going away. And then you got another 25% primarily dependent um, on it. So what happened in Russia in 98? Did that ultimately lead to Putin then? Is that the guy who came in after? You know, I guess Yeltsin all that and the, just uh, – Yeltsin left, yeah, around that time. Putin came in. and yeah. so uh, But the Russians – the Russians, the Russians uh, I go to Russia quite a bit to work there with some economists. So uh, the Russian uh, mentality uh, – they're much tougher people. They can accept. Yeah. I met a lady in 98 when I first went to Russia to advise the government about pension reform. I met a um, professor of English from Moscow University on the airplane. She happened to be flying. Uh, I was leaving. She was leaving for, for some conference that she was asked to go to. She told me, we're sitting next to each other, she told me that had she not had a garden plot, Every Russian has a, a lot of Russians have these little garden plots. She and her mother would have died over the winter she, because the, her salary from Moscow State University was not keeping up with inflation. So she and her mother would have literally starved to death. This is extremely well-educated uh, person, professor, you know, older professor. She was like in her early 60s. She was maybe late 50s. Uh, that was the situation, and uh, you know, they, it's not like there was a, an October Revolution again. Right. People just accepted it. That was just 20 years ago. Yeah. So they're accepting hard times right now because of the sanctions, and uh, that's uh, so the economy is not doing as well as it uh, would otherwise have, and so it's a. Uh, but people are. They, they can live on potatoes and 
Americans can't necessarily. That's what I was going to say. The Russians have been dealing with this for a long time, not us. I mean, you know, I love America, but we're fat and happy. And, you know, the idea of living off a garden plot, I mean, you see what happens when the power goes out for three nights. I mean, people start panicking. I mean, hell, for a night, people start panicking. They don't know what to do. Can you imagine telling somebody that you're not going to have your Social Security because of inflation? I mean, let me uh, – Change a couple questions real quick, if you don't mind. Just you're a professor; you've been in you know academia for a long, long time. Larry, I got so my old I have four kids. My oldest is uh, getting ready to go to school next year, and um, she got to give an example and not bash Northeastern, but she got the Northeastern, and they gave her twenty five thousand dollars. It's still going to be fifty thousand a year. When I'm sitting there, and now we live in Georgia, so Georgia, if if you you get this thing called the Zell Miller Scholarship, which essentially pays for your tuition, and all you got to do is pay fees and room and board, which is which is phenomenal. So she's going to go to Georgia Tech, but I, I don't get Larry how people afford this. I mean, so you know, she got a lot. She got a rice. She got a noted a lot of good schools, and not specific to her, but just you know, she's pretty much an academic standout. And I don't know if my other three will be, but how do people afford this higher education? Say it's just it boggles the mind. Um, any any thoughts? I mean, that can't be. <laughs> that's got to come to a stop at some point too, right? Yeah, uh, well, you know, it's very much uh, these extremely high tuitions are, first of all, somewhat headline uh, numbers because there's a lot of discounting of the price through uh, scholarships. And um, uh, so, for example, at Boston University, we have a very high, that kind of a tuition like Northwestern ha- Northeastern has. Yeah. But the actual price is on average that kids pay, I believe, is around a third or maybe even 35% lower. Don't quote, quote me on that because I don't know for sure. Yeah, I guess. So, so part of this is that it's really trying to uh, uh, price discriminate towards uh, richer people. So richer people uh, are paying the full freight and poor people are paying a lower price, but the universities are not really advertising it. So it's not, not quite as bad as it seems. Uh, now, in your daughter's case, she might have, I don't know, she sounds like, she, you said she's already accepted uh, uh, her school. She's not going to Northeastern, right? right? It just can't afford it. I mean, that's, you know, we can't, right. I mean, 40000 a year, even after, pre, and, and, and I don't want to make this specific about her. I just, you know, as we sit there and we look at the various, Educational, um, the cost right. of attendance. Did you is, try and negotiate with Northeastern and say, yeah, look, she's got these other? Yeah, yeah, and, and frankly, we, we, yes, we did, and we probably could have made a bigger case for it, but when, you know, the, the Georgia Tech is just such a smoking deal, we, we just couldn't turn that down. But, you know, when, yeah, that's a great school. Yeah. Yeah, no, right on. And then, you know, like when, and then Notre Dame, so we met, like, just give you an example, we met the guy, you know, the, the fun, not the fundraiser guy, but the guy goes around and gives all these presentations about how great their school is. And he said, our average student graduates with $20,000 of debt. And I, I just, it, there's no way that's true. Unless, you know, they're, they have rich parents, they're paying for everything. And I, I just, I just chuckle because, you know, we, you know, Notre Dame, we like it. It's, uh, you know, we're Irish Catholic. It's wonderful. But the other day, you know, fifty thousand bucks a year is fifty thousand bucks a year, and I just—that's <laughs> great. I mean, they get so North, so North Notre Dame wasn't going to discount it either, right? I guess a it little just, bit, but not much. And you know, they don't have to because there's such a good, you know, the pedigree and you know, prestige is whatnot. I guess, but I just sit there and I'm uh-huh. thinking, man, are these people not seeing that at some point? And like you said, unless they're discounted for 
whole lot of people that at some point this it's kind of like Social Security. At some point, the credit card is gonna is gonna be maxed out, and I don't. <laughs> what happens then in higher education? Um, you know, never mind Social yeah. Security, Medicare, Medicaid. But part yeah. of this is that it's very difficult in this marketplace to distinguish yourself. Um, uh, you know, the, the the industry has become more concentrated. There's less co- fewer companies out there, and you're trying to. Uh, so people are paying a premium to go to premium schools to try and signal that they're somehow better than somebody else yeah. and more talented. And and the schools themselves are competing with each other for ranking, so the yeah. families are coming down class sizes in order to get higher average SAT scores. So the total number of kids going to these more elite schools is dropping. So that's part of the dynamic here that um, – but yeah, frankly, I don't know. Uh, I don't. Is uh, yeah. I've written uh, papers with my company's software, yeah. uh, which does lifetime uh, financial planning, and and looked at whether a doctor uh, who who spends four years in college, four years in medical school, three or so years being an intern, finally ends up uh, as a doctor and has to pay for malpractice and all the <laughs> doesn't work all that malpractice insurance doesn't work for all those years uh, whether they actually earn more on a lifetime basis than a plumber and yep. who drops out of high school and goes into plumbing at 19 yep. it turns out they're very similar lifetime uh, living standards almost identical lifetime incomes in effect and the other thing is the doctor gets pushed into a much higher tax bracket right away because you know he's going to he or she's going to earn a high salary, so it's not like he's going to be they're going to be able to smooth their average their taxes over their years that they were not earning money. So uh, this um, and then also being a doctor is risky. You know you could uh, you could hurt somebody accidentally. You could um, you know, if you're a surgeon, if your vision could get impaired. Um, whereas being a plumber, you can keep at it. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, although plumbing is pretty complicated, so plumbing is Well, actually, let me ask you about that because I love just folks who are listening. You know, Larry, you know, I'll put the link to all this, you know, Larry's software and whatnot. I love this. So I just your book, you and Scott Burns did spend to the end is you know one of the seminal moments of my financial planning experience. But just go, tell me about how you, you know, not to change topics too much, but it's a wonderful segue. How did you end up getting involved in? creating the software packages and programs that did. Did you talk to some financial guys at the advisor and he said, no, you're good to go, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what, what was the stimulus to say, you know, there's got to be a better way than what I'm seeing or what's out there because, you know, you're not a day-to-day financial advisor, but yet you have this wonderful software that consumers and advisors alike can use, and it's actually quite cheap, and I'm just wondering what, what how that come to fruition. Well, I kind of got into economics to try and help do some some good, not just um, write academic papers that other academics would would read. And and I was doing research on saving and life insurance adequacy, and I realized that the software that we were developing was really good for telling people uh, what to do, not just analyzing their mistakes, but actually prescribing what they should do, prescribing economic medicine. So at the time, I had a small consulting job with for Lonnie Stephens, he was like the third in charge of third highest ranking guy at Merrill Lynch. 
And I went to him with a friend and said, Lonnie, we can, we can make this terrific software. Give us X amount of money. We'll make it for you. Wasn't sure I could pull it off, but anyway, that's what we said. He said, go see the head of financial planning. We said, great. Went down to see him. He's a psychologist, great. and he hated economists. And within two minutes, he kicks us out of the office. You know, he says, our software, our software, our uh, financial foundation report that Merrill Lynch put out at the time is just fine. It's working. People like it and get lost. <laughs> and, and even though I think that, uh, you know, that the methodology that the industry is using back then and still today, which is this, uh, uh, kind of guess where, what you're going to be spending in retirement as opposed to having the software figured out for you, which is what our software does, uh, that methodology can lead to terrible advice on everything, savings, spending, insurance, investing. Anyway, uh, they, he didn't care about that. And nope. nobody else really in the industry, uh, in the financial industry, seems to care about the advice they're handing out. So I went off and, um, with a grad student, and then uh, basically on my own developed the software. We got a, came up with some techniques for getting it to work really fast, got a patent for the algorithm. And and then uh, it's been 25 years now, so we have the software uh, that um, uh, uh, we have the latest version of our software is called MaxifyPlanner.com, uh, M-A-X-I-F-I-P-L-A-N-N-E-R. And it, it figures out in a half a second a lifetime plan. It's really doing lifetime budgeting, how much you should spend every year so you have the same living standard so you don't run out um, of money, even if you make it to 100. And then it's also figuring out safe ways to raise your living standard by optimizing over Social Security and, and retirement account uh, withdrawal decisions and contribution decisions and whether or not you take your money as an annuity uh, or in, or in, in uh, kind of fixed payments. So all these things affect your taxes and also the social, yeah. social security benefits uh, are big decisions, as you know. So uh, the software can um, basically robo-optimizes you, robo-maximizes your living standard. And and that means, uh, you know, you can get a much higher living standard off of what you're – by getting more from the government and paying less to the government. Now, if we all do that um, – the government, I said earlier, is is broke. So, some level, we can't all do that. Uh, the government's going to have to uh, change the rules. But it shouldn't be that some people save on taxes, uh, be it Donald Trump or somebody else who's got sophisticated lawyers or knows right. how to play the system, and that others don't. I think everybody should get the same good financial advice, uh, and. Uh, and then we should set a tax system that makes sense and collects enough revenue to pay for for everything we need. Uh, so, so I, I don't really feel conflicted. I think you know, uh, I think people all need to have good financial advice, and uh, if they can take their Social Security benefits at 70 rather than 62 and get a 76% higher check, and and it's in their circumstances worth it because they have a let's say a high uh, maximum age of life, they're like there's a chance they could live to a long age. Um, then they should know that that makes much more sense than taking the money early. Uh, as an example. Well, uh, therefore, I mean, it's it's not stealing. It's literally a legitimate. Yeah, it's just an option. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not. Uh, so, well, 
along those lines, you know, the Merrill Lynch guy, not bash them, but, you know, I've been in the business for 20-odd years, and you know, the financial software that all these firms have um, are geared towards <laughs> uh, let's making money off the clients. It's just I don't, yeah, I'm not putting a word in your mouth, and I don't want to begrudge. But, I mean, the financial planning software that's out there is crap because it says a lot of times it's junk in, and what are you using for your inputs to determine Various rates of return and things of that nature, and you know, that just this uh, frustrates you because that you it's, know that you know, is too is you know I, I agree 100 percent. The um, I think there's really a con in conventional financial planning. Uh, the first words are con, and the, the con really works like this: it's a bait and switch. Uh, Joe comes to uh, the planner. Um, I don't think the planner, by the way, necessarily knows understands this. I'll get back to that, but I don't think it's like the financial planners that are necessarily at fault here because they're hand in software that they're kind of forced to use. Uh, anyway, Joe comes, this uh, financial planner, and he uses the software that he's given. And the first question to to Joe is, how much do you want to spend in retirement? Yeah. And Joe throws up his hands, and then the person yeah. says, well, the rule of thumb is spend <laughs> 80% of your pre-retirement income which is way too high for anybody from almost all households. But anyway, so when we go, Joe says, okay, that's not that's the convention. Uh, that's what the industry thinks, uh, the professionals think. Sure. So then he runs the program with 80% and finds out that, that Joe is not saving enough. He's going to fail his plan. His plan's not going to be able to uh, – he won't be able to hit that target of spending in retirement. So uh, then the planner says, well, look, if you invest in these high-yield mutual funds right. – uh, which happen to have a high fee, gee, your probability of making your targets much higher. But what generally is not pushed is the fact that the probability of losing your shirt is also much higher. So the client is forced, to, uh, is kind of induced through this mechanism to pay higher fees and take more risk than is appropriate. And that's what I call like a bait and switch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the basic method of, of uh, Sales and industry, but I, I don't think most financial planners really get that there's an alternative that where you don't actually ask the client right off the bat what he wants to spend or she spend because you can calculate that internally. There's no reason to ask the client. You can just say, look, what do you expect to earn? Uh, what are your assets? What's your retirement accounts? What are your what are your alimony payments and your kids' tuition, your mortgage? And we'll figure it out. Our software yeah. right here will figure it out in half a second. I mean, that's what our software does. Because here's where you can spend so can, the criteria being you want to keep on spending it. You don't want your living standard to drop. And I'm talking here about your discretionary spending, basically. I'm not talking about your off-the-top expenses on mortgage payments or taxes uh, because they're treated as things you have to spend. But the rest of your money, you know, your your clothes and your yeah. food and all that, uh, you really want to have the same living standard into the future per person. So the software has to take into account the number of people, and, you know, when the kids are going to leave and uh, uh, how old are the kids or, and the economies in shared living and all that. So, uh, yeah, it's 25 years now. and we've, uh, So we're making our way through the developing better-looking software, but we haven't done it with – we couldn't get any money from the investment industry because yeah. they right. so far haven't realized it could help them you yeah. know, help. They think it would just hurt their. I guess they think it will hurt, hurt their sales. They're not just not interested in giving good advice. Well, Larry, they're not students of the game. I, I just, I mean, I hate to say this, but the, the financial planners that are working for these big firms, and you know, there's no 
pure windrows and snow big firms. I don't care. That doesn't mean they're evil. It just means, you know, they have to put revenue on the top line and, you know, have profits on the bottom, regardless if they're a, uh, a stock-owned company or even if they're a, uh, you know, basically a mutual company of some sort, they still got to make money, and, and I get that. But that there's no incentive for them to change. In fact, the thing that just, oh, just annoys me to no end is not only what you said about, you know, stupid 80%, you know, a rule is that on top of that, they use the Monte Carlo scenarios and they don't account for taxes or investment management fees. And I just, if you're and you know, everyone's going away from high mutual funds. Now they're going to managed accounts, you know, when they're using ETFs, but they're still charging, you know, 1% on, you know, so they're all in fees 1%, but they're only showing, you know, Monte Carlo analysis as if, you know, they're in pure indexes and that just, uh, it's absolutely misleading, and uh, and you know, average Joe, mom, and Bob, you know, fifty, sixty-two-year-old couple, they're they're just being misled, and it's uh, it's actually not right, and I I don't understand why. And I hate to because I'm libertarian, hundred percent. I I hate the idea of saying the regulatory agencies need to look at this, but if you go, if you if Larry goes to a financial planning firm, the financial planning firm says, oh, you're good to go because of this, or you're not good to go because of that. And the guy who's t- telling you that doesn't know what he's talking about, and you're using that to base the pure future retirement consumption on. It's just, man, ugh, it's just, it's, 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 it's risky. Broken. It's risky. Um, and you're right about the Monte Carlo. I mean, there's so much uh, that's wrong about the Monte Carlo. It's, you know, it, it's predicated on this target for spending in retirement that's wrong to begin with. Yes. Whether or not, you know, the success rate, and then the. Um, there's this assumption that you're going to keep spending at that targeted level no matter what happens to the market. You could lose half your money and the next day losing another quarter, and you're still going to keep spending as if nothing happened. That's ridiculous. So it's modeling behavior that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, so what we do in our software is we do Monte Carlos on your living standard. We show you what happens through time if you're investing at risk to your your living standard, which is really like your discretionary spending per household member with a, with a couple adjustments. Um, so what happens to your living standard every year as you get these different rates of return at random that you're, based on what, what you're investing in? And we and that takes into account the taxes and, and takes into account the fact that people are going to be adjusting their spending uh, based on how well they do or how poorly they do through time. So, um, so our software... Uh, again, if if you're an economist, you know, I developed this from looking at what economic theory uh, says to do. And and economic certainly theory certainly says that if you take a 50% hit on your stocks and you have a lot of stocks to begin with, you, you should cut your spending this year. Yeah. Because you're not as rich as you thought you would have been. It's not like you should keep spending some target that you set 20 years ago in somebody's right. office. <laughs> that he said for you, uh, based on some cockamamie software. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's really, it's really, really ridiculous. We said I thought I'd be able to take. I mean, I chuckled at this because it's not the client's fault; it's the advisor's fault. And this was literally just a couple months ago. He's like, I thought I'd be able to take six percent a year off my portfolio because my portfolio should average ten percent based on historical numbers and blah blah blah. And I just, uh, I just had to take a brief, deep breath and say, you know, that's just, again, that's uh, just bad financial planning. But it's no, no base in reality, based on your consumption, like what you know, what your book is going to be in, what your software shows, and all. They just, 
It's just completely a, a thrown-out number that people, the client, this is what takes me off, is the clients are looking at these people as if they know the answers. And the people, the financial planners, don't because they're either told by their corporate you know, bosses, this is what we're going to tell people, or they're just not students of the game where they don't read enough and, or digest enough information to really say, huh, there might be a different alternative. And, and I guarantee if you looked at, you know, a hundred different clients, they say, should I pay off my mortgage or invest, and they go to financial firms, I guarantee you 80% will say you should invest as opposed to paying off mortgages and whatnot. And, I mean, that's, I mean, I don't want to get my, my soapbox. Um, I, I, look, it's, I just a couple more questions before if you don't mind them. I got tons of stuff to answer sure, sure. to ask you, but, um, so you live in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts has a horrific estate tax, right? So um, state estate tax. I mean, you know, a smart economist like you, you're not going to die in Massachusetts, right? I mean, you're going to move before you end up dying there because you don't want your estate to be taxed to death, I assume. So I just, in terms of just overall estate tax and things of that nature, I mean, what, what's just your econ- economics take on does that hurt? Does that help? I mean, I, I, I can't even pose that question. Does it help? Because it can't. But just what's your take on other taxation thoughts, like estate tax and things of that nature? And any thoughts on that in terms of, I don't know, overall economic development or things? Does that make any sense? What I'm asking you by chance. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the uh, state taxation is really a big, big issue. Uh, the, you know, it's a lot. Of, I know a lot of rich people that. Spend half the year out of out of Massachusetts because they don't want to get hit with the estate tax or state income taxes in Massachusetts. Uh, yeah. So, um, and then, but the the, uh, the bigger concern I have right now with state taxation has to do with with um, small businesses and there's a decision the Supreme Court is about to make uh, dealing with Amazon and sales taxation. So right now, if you market products through Amazon, they don't uh, charge state sales taxes. Uh, the Supreme Court may well decide in the next two months that uh, that if you market products uh, to people through Amazon who live in a different state than you are in or anywhere in the country, even if you don't have a physical presence in those uh, states, what's called a nexus, you still have to pay state sales taxes. Now, the problem with that is that uh, on the sales. So it's not yeah. so much charging the customer for the sales tax. That's the easy thing. The the big problem is having to file 50 state tax returns. Good say. Yeah, right. And, oh. and, you know, I in my company, we have employees in about six states, and I get bombarded by those six states with all kinds of emails oh. and forms yeah. every day. So if you multiply that by, you know, if I had to deal with 50 states, I'd have to hire a full-time accountant, which would put my company under. It's, it's um, so we need to have uh, a law that requires the states to coordinate collectively, have a single return that businesses can file, and then the states can each take their share of the return based on what uh, tax they, they said. But uh, it shouldn't be that you have to file 50 corporate income tax, which state corporate income taxes if you're a small company, 50 uh, franchise taxes, file 50 state uh, annual reports. Uh, uh, you have employment uh, uh, 
compensation, uh, it goes on. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, sales taxes, uh, workers' comp in each state. <laughs> yeah, it's it really is. Uh, it's enough to make you Republican if you're a Democrat. Right. It's you know it's enough to make you crazy if you're a Republican. So uh, we don't want to under we we got to keep small. You know, all small businesses right now are really operating at risk because that nobody knows for sure what the law is. But some state where we're not paying sales taxes, for example, we're decide all of a sudden that um, we should pay sales taxes and come after us in particular. We're a very small company, but uh, they could put us out of business overnight. Just hiring a lawyer would put us out of business. Uh, so everybody's uh, operating. Crazy. Every small business that's selling out of state is operating uh, under this sort of uh, – this this uh, legal sort of Damocles where nobody knows whether they're operating uh, within the law or outside the law because the law is not clear. It's, and you can call any, any expert in state sales and in, in corporate taxation will say the same thing. The whole issue of nexus is just unclear what, uh, who, and it's just a matter of bargaining with the states. Well, there's That's no way around a country. Yeah. So, the Supreme Court is going to have a decision what June, I guess, about that? About if that's... Yeah, up. there's a case that they're hearing which has to do with Amazon, whether Amazon should uh, be collecting taxes for... Not, Amazon itself collects sales taxes no matter what state you're in. You, you have to pay your state sales tax if you order something, but, but it's third parties that are selling through Amazon. Okay. You know, for example, if we were to sell our software through Amazon, uh, the um, uh, if the, the Supreme Court might might say that we have to pay uh, sales sales taxes on we have to charge sales taxes on every sale. And frankly, I've decided not to use Amazon because I was afraid that if we did, and the Supreme Court ruled that way, we'd suddenly have to file, you know, like 250 tax returns. Uh. Each state on average has about five forms. Um, <laughs> so, so here I'm trying to make keep my company uh, solvent, you know, hire Americans, and you know, get uh, get some software to the people that need it at low price. And I face economic ruin because of this uh, state taxation system. Uh. And so I, so rather than try and you know, expand the business with Amazon. Which would be a natural thing to do. I uh, decided not to do it. Um, it's too too risky. That's. Um, but we might still get hit that way anyway, with depending on how the rule, ruling comes down exactly. Well, that's one of those cases where if some enterprising, I guess, state revenue officer says, "Hey, we, you know, you for some reason, you know, you came across our." Uh, our horizon, we're going to go after you, but we're not going to go after the guy down the street for whatever reason. And then, you know, you're doomed, and the guy down the street's like, man, sorry for him. But yeah, least- as soon as you register, you know, once if I'm, here's the thing. Once you're, you're in technical, you know, once the Supreme Court would rule that way, we would have to then register with each state. That's like 50 state logins, by the way. Yeah. And then, and then they could go after you for all your past um Sales taxes that you didn't collect. Um, so you, I could go back 20 years from what I had gathered from talking to lawyers. So this is really a dangerous thing 
for small companies. We need to have a federal uh, – unfortunately, the feds can't really – uh, because the Constitution, I don't think they can tell the states what to do, but uh, they can probably strongly encourage the states to have a single return, a single annual corporate uh, uh, filing, uh, annual report. Why should you have to fill fill in 50 annual reports? I mean, this is this is why the you know this is one reason, apart from all the other problems of the federal government is imposing on us and not doing its job and screwing up health care and everything, you know, right. social security and taxes, all this other stuff aside, uh, if small businesses can't expand right. in this country, they can't hire. So, uh, you know, you never heard this discussed in the campaign, right? Uh, no, it's not sexy. You know, we got to talk about walls and Syria and stuff. Is, uh, yeah, call people names, right? Hey, well, this is the stuff that really puts food on, literally puts food on the table for vast majority of Americans, and yet uh, doesn't get yeah. uh, doesn't have on CNN or Fox News. Um, that I, I did not know that. That's fantastic. Well, not fantastic. I'm very uh, not very keen on that as a small business owner myself. So I just uh, um, yeah, yeah. But you probably don't have customers out of clients out of state, so you don't probably don't well, face this yet. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Larry. At the end of the day, I mean, I I have books to sell, and I got the. And nowadays, you don't need to be in Georgia uh, to work with with me. You can do it, you know, via Skype or I mean, you know, anything. You know what I'm saying? And uh, I mean, if they can get you, they can certainly get me too. And that's um, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, everybody. Yeah. Oh hell, they can get. In fact, you know, you know, they're gonna go after people who can't afford to pants. I mean, it's not rocket science that you know Amazon has the big big attorneys that you know your firm certainly doesn't uh, by by nature you don't want to but uh, that's uh that's uh. all right so last question for it I'll let you get on to your evening um all right so lots of you know stuff we talked about man I tell you Larry, this has been fantastic I could ask you a million I have literally sheets and sheets and sheets of questions to ask you but I'll let you uh go on to better things um so you got a couple kids and uh, what would you say to you know your kids? I think you got two sons. Is that right? At least that's what I saw. Yeah, yeah. two sons. Yeah. Uh-huh. About getting their financial situation situated. Like, what do you tell them? Like, you know, or anything? I mean, I don't know. As a dad, you know, but a dad is a professional economist who's you know been part of various. He's been very well known in the financial planning industry. I, I wish you were more well known, frankly. I'm not saying you're not, but I wish when I said on a you know a couple of Facebook groups I'm part of financial planning. And they say, what books to read? I say, read Kotlikoff's and Scott Burns' books. Um, I wish people say, oh, yeah, I have, you know, I have that on occasion. But it seems like um, you know, Ray Dalio and things like that, they read uh, very uh, more. I, I, it's too bad. But anyway, mm-hmm. so you're still well-known all that. You have two kids, and as a dad, and as a professional, what do you tell them to get their financial future squared away to look at things? I mean, Anything jumps out at you, say, man, you guys got to do this or don't do that. Anything, any thoughts on that? I'm actually just curious, to be honest with you. Well, you got to, I guess I would say uh, my kids are still a little bit too young to to have kind of investment issues, but I would say if if you have enough money that you're starting to invest, be careful about what the government might be, you know, the government's uh, situation because if the government – Prints money to pay its bills. It's going to produce higher inflation, higher interest yep. rates, and that's going to drop bond prices. So if you're investing in long-term bonds in an index or just individual bonds, 
that's risky. So keeping an eye on what the government's up to, really understanding that. Uh, I think housing is obviously expensive, but the housing is a safe. Once you buy a house, yeah. if the prices go up or down, you're kind of insulated because if you're just sitting in the house, uh, the, the stream of services are continuing. It's a safe thing. And also, it's a safe that when you retire to be in a house because uh, if you've got it paid off, nobody can take it away from you. It's it's a stream. It's like an annuity of housing services. Uh, if you're uh, obviously, I think people who are younger need to contribute as much as possible to retirement accounts. Uh, that um, and generally get generally enough to get any matching contribution yes, from the employer. I think nobody can really beat the market. So if you're going to invest, basically investing in index funds yeah. that are at low fee, as you were just saying, not high fee, and um, and then just keep you know get a, get a job that you like and keep at it, um, and uh, don't don't think about retiring. Think of plan to not retire because you probably can't afford to retire. The, the government has so many bills that they're going to land on your head in terms of higher taxes and lower benefits that you should try and find something you can do for a long, long time, like in the oh, age 80. That's uh, and that's that's uh, that right. Find something you do for a long, long time that can generate income. So that's uh, you know, it's funny. That's that's absolutely wonderful advice because <laughs> hey, real quick, I promise you, in the last one. Along those lines, Roth IRAs, I mean, you think it's worth to pay the tax up front, given that the government is going to be in a world of hurt 20, 30 years from now, even earlier, that they might renew on the tax-free promise on the Roth? Or what's what's your thought on that? I think tax rates are going to go up and uh, have to go up, and benefits are going to get cut. Um, The question is whether we're going to do this with least pain or maximum pain, and especially to our kids, or whether we adults are going to take any of the burden or just leave the whole thing uh, to our kids and grandkids, as we seem to be doing, and as other generations have done to us. So this kind of pass the generational buck, take-as-you-go policy. Um, but so on the Roth, uh, I don't want to try and, not here to try and plug our software, but we have this program, MaxifyPlanner.com, you can specify under the assumptions about, you can specify that taxes will be raised in the future by the percentage that you think they will, that you want to explore. And then you can see whether your living standard, if you use a Roth, uh, is going to be higher than if you just put in money into a 401k. So there is a way to kind of think about this systematically. How much would taxes have to go up in order for me to be better off if I contribute to a Roth versus uh, not contribute I mean, just to a 401k, and if you think that's a range, you know, if you think that's within the, the likely set and uh, of tax increases, and the, your living standard is going to be higher with the, uh, in, that, in that circumstance with the Roth, then yeah, putting some money into the Roth or maybe all your retirement account contributions into the Roth makes some sense. But uh, most 401k, most companies. Um, aren't doing a match on the Roth. They're doing a match on the 401k, so you certainly yes. want to get that match. That's free money. Um, and then it's just beyond that whether you want to uh, uh, contribute uh, to a to a Roth or right. contribute to a regular IRA or some, something else um, or to a, put more into it, like a supplemental retirement account. 
I'll, um, I'll put in the show notes, Larry, all your software because like, I highly recommend it. I've been using a financial planning software for people who are listening for over 20 years, and it's wonderful. It does the consumption smoothing, which is what Larry talks about in his book, Spend Till the End. And I, I tell you, that was, for me, Larry, is a seminal moment in my financial planning life when I read that. I think it's back in 2007, was it now? I, I, go on. Yeah, about that, yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm glad you read it because I'm not sure. I didn't know. <laughs> I'm excited that you read it. Uh, I thought it was a good book, but it came out right at the middle of the, uh, yeah. you know, right in the crash. The market was going down, and uh, I think it was like 2000, it may have been 2000, uh, I don't know, the market, it was, I think we were in this recession at that point, maybe it was 2009. And, yeah, um, it, was, it, was, it was back in the late aughts. But I remember, man, I just yeah. it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, whoa, no one's, no one has talked about that before. About, I just was, I tell you, it's, is is the best fun. Anyone who says to me, Larry, when they say, what's the best fun? That's a book I point to without question. There's a book on estate planning that, you know, I get that. But this for literally, you know, someone's not just retirement, but just, it's you know, like, it's just the examples to use. I mean, my wife and me, my four children. To say we're going to spend 80% of our pre-retirement salary when it's just me, she, and I as empty nesters, you know, 15 years from now, it's just it's preposterous. And but but it's not. It's just you don't see that because everyone else is talking 80% of your. Anyway, I just I don't want to yap your ear off here. But that book was fantastic. Your software is fantastic. I love it. I mean, Thank just, you so much. Oh, so scary stuff. The the only thing is that, um. And, and now you got the, uh, I think the Max Fi is the Max Fi that has the web base, or is it the, I can't remember. One of the two has the web based one. Oh, the Maxify Planner is web based, and yes. um, we also have Maximize My Social Security, which is forty dollars to figure out your Social Security. I'll give you the the URL for the entire company for all our products. We also have a divorce settlement product, product called uh, Analyze My Divorce Settlement. Oh. Dot com. Really? Which is relatively know. new. Yeah, and for some. For a couple that's getting divorced, um, uh, this shows on a side-by-side basis how each spouse will uh, fare, what their living standard will be, and you can quickly see what's needed to produce uh, a fair settlement. Uh, so, and that program is selling for for 99 bucks. So, rather than going to divorce war right. with expensive attorneys, why not spend 99 bucks and try and see? Uh, resolve your your financial arguments. You're not going to resolve that he cheated on me or she cheated on me issues. <laughs> but at least this stuff can limit the the fighting and maybe keep the kids psychologically whole. So so if you go to economicsecurityplanning.com, that's our company's name. Economicsecurityplanning.com. Economicsecurityplanning.com. Gotcha. Okay. Right. And that shows all the software and. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's forty yeah. bucks for Social Security to run a Social Security. Four, literally forty bucks to run the most uh, intense—not intense as labor intensive, but in terms of the numbers that you're going to get for forty bucks to run a Social Security analysis. You can't beat that. And and if you and I just yeah. say, where you know, you, you can go to the website. I get that good stuff for free. That's fine. But man, for forty bucks, you're you're not going to get a better software package at all. And of course, if you're a financial advisor. You can also get this stuff as a heck of a lot cheaper than all the other competitive softwares out there, and yet it's better. And I know this for a fact because I've looked at them all. E-Money um, is a money, money Guy Pro. I know all and have a plan. I know them all. They're all good. 
but uh, they don't do what Larry's stuff does. And uh, not to yeah, I, mean, I have to agree with you. You know, I I hate to uh, shoot my own horn, but I wouldn't trust any of the software. And I, you know, one other thing I should say to, to the listeners is that unlike presidents of other companies, uh, I don't take any any money from my company. Boston University pays me fine, you know, well, and I don't. What I do is run the, the company basically as a charity because I try and hire as many people as I can, the company can afford, and try and sell the products at the lowest possible price. So I haven't gotten a penny from the company in 25 years. Oh, man. As a matter of fact, the company owes me money. So <laughs> so it's not like I'm pushing this in order to, you know, pad my pocket. Not the case. It can help people. I mean, literally, I'm very not paying yeah. money, but I'm telling people right now, it can help them. So, man, that has been great. Larry, I tell you, so much obliged to you for, believe it or not, I'm telling you, like I said, you've been a big impact on my, my life uh, as a professional, but also my own personal finances as well, believe it or not. And, again, I don't know uh, I, I don't know any other book I recommend to people who ask me about financial planning. I recommend yours first and foremost, that's for sure. Uh, the website is fantastic. And I tell you, I just – what for me is, and I'll let you go, is just saying find something you like to do until you're 80. Uh, you know, I'm 47, and so I still got, you know, 30 years, 33 until I'm 80. And, and that that's that advice for people who are listening who are just not happy in their current bottom life, are they going to do that till 80? Because they're going to need to find some source of income after a, after normal retirement age because, like you said, Social Security is going to have a hard time making, making good their promises. So, yeah. Larry Kalkoff, I appreciate it, sir. I'll let you get on to your evening, but thank you so much. This has been fantastic. My, my pleasure. Yeah, I'll, my pleasure. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the link of this podcast when it's done. And again, thanks. I appreciate your time. Have a good evening, sir. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.